Buckle up. Welcome to Musicians and Beyond special multi-part series, Under the Covers with Ernie Sheffaloo. Your host, John Sarabian and Mark Lawhorn, are going to expose the history-making journey of this iconic figure and his contributions to the music and corporate world. Mark, this is awesome. This is going to be another fun one. You know, I enjoyed the episode 28 that we did with Ernie, and uh, doing this multi-part series is really going to give the audience a really great background in how this world works, how Ernie's life has been, and it's a very fascinating and exciting story to hear, especially from the storyteller himself. Absolutely. So let's get going with part one of Under the Covers, Ernie Sheffalo. Hey, guys. How you doing? Fantastic, thank, Ernie. Thank you so much for yes. that wonderful introduction. And, you know, I'm truly humbled by the opportunity. You know, it's been kind of a crazy 52-year career, you know. <laughs> and, you know, for it to start culminating at 77, you know, it's, you know, and, and it's really, for me, it's very... Uh, convincing it helps me understand that why i'm still doing what i do you know i love what i do i've always loved it from the beginning i was born on income tax day 1945 you know and uh my parents talked about sometimes it was a good refund from the government sometimes it was a bad thing on that ta- on that tax day but you know I was very, I was very, very blessed to have great parents and come from a great family of Italians who actually came here at the turn of the century. Uh, my mother was born on the boat coming over from, you know, from Calabria, and my dad came from Sicily. And you know, in those days, you know, all the Italians were crooks and all the Irish were were cops. You know, and so there was a lot of uh, craziness going on then. But I, I was born in Milwaukee, and. I have, like I said, both families. In my family, uh, my mother and her two sisters married my father and his two brothers. So it was like kind of like an Italian deliverance, but instead of an accordion <laughs> or a banjo, they had an accordion, you know. And uh, so I had these double first cousins, you know, where our mothers are sisters and our fathers were brothers. I mean, it's wow. crazy, that's crazy. But it, when you think about the time, that's really what people did. You didn't really marry outside of the family, you know, whether you were Irish or Italian or, you know, Asian or American Indian, whatever. Everybody kind of stayed in their own space. And, you know, and I was very lucky to have a family that was pretty open-minded, even though they were Italians, heavy Italians on both sides. I, when I brought my wife home as my girlfriend, my mother tried to overdose on raviolis because she was a blonde. She, you know, she was uh, not Catholic. I mean, it's great, but we'll talk about all that later on because my mother always wanted me to marry an Italian girl. And it, it was kind of arranged like that. You know, my uncle married uh, my uncle who met my aunt. Uh, they got together. They got married. And at their wedding, the other two brothers and sisters met and they got married. So it was like this crazy thing. And all of a sudden I come home with this blonde, blue eyed, very pale woman who, you know, my mother, like I said, it was it was it was pretty amazing to watch her react to it. But, you know, she knew even as as how weird as it was for her um, to to accept that, because I was really the first one out of my family. I mean, even, you know, dating, she would set up these dates with Italian girls, you know, who's because what happened was a lot of the family moved 
from the East Coast to the West Coast. In, in 1950, my uncle was the first one to come out here in 46. He was a plumber. Track homes, the war is over, vets are coming back. They're building track homes. Track homes became a big thing. And my dad had and mom had moved us to Florida. And my uncle, his brother, uh, kept hounding him. You should come out to California, come out, because this is the building industry is going crazy. And, you know, they were flipping houses. They were buying houses in the 50s for like five and six thousand dollars and doing the plumbing, doing the carpentry and flipping it, you know, and, and it was crazy how they were very much ahead of their time and plugged into what they were doing. They were craftsmen. And, you know, I, I picked up a lot of my love for what I did from my dad. My dad was a master carpenter, cabinet maker. He was a finished carpenter. And, you know, all through high school, you know, uh, I had really just played around with art in, in elementary school. You know, everybody draws and then you become like the best one, you know, and then junior high school was kind of the same for me. Um, I had gone to a, a, a junior high school that was just a block or so away from where I lived and all my friends. And, you know, I got into art because it was very easy for me. You know, I, I kind of always loved it. As a kid, I would wait for the Sunday paper to come and, and I would sit there and draw Bugs Bunny and, and, you know, Porky Pig and Donald Duck all day long uh, while my dad rest, read the rest of the paper. I would take the comic strips. But, you know, it was uh, uh, something that I always loved to do. And, and, and in, in high school, you know, and each time we're all kind of equal. I mean, everybody was, everybody drew in elementary school. Everybody drew in junior high school. And then when you come to high school, it's a little bit different because they separate you from you have in elementary school and even in junior high school, you start getting it where you're going to different classes with different kids. It's not the same room all day long with the same kids. Yeah. So junior high school became a little more competitive, you know, because it sort of filtered down the people that really wanted to do art versus the people that everybody did art. And then when I went to when I so when I went to high school from junior high school, I had spent three years in junior high school becoming the best artist. And then I go to, to high school and there's art classes where people were really interested in being artists. And so I found myself, you know, competing again, starting out with, the, you know, I'm a, I'm a a freshman and there's juniors and seniors who are already years ahead of me doing art. And so you have to sort of get over the fact that you're, you were once the best and now you're just another one, you know? And so you have to sort of become the best. And I, and I always, you know, well, I didn't sit there and, and think out loud to myself, well, I'm going to be the best. I just focused on what I love to do and actually what came easiest for me. You know, it was art was always a it was a good place to run and hide. OK, from everything else that was going on, whether it was girls or, you know, uh, cars or just getting in trouble. Art was always a, a, a refuge for me. And, you know, it, it's it was kind of like that in, in all the way along, even in college. But in high school, uh, I had a very good high school teacher who um really sort of took me under his wing but talking about mentors jump back to elementary school when um you know i i spent more time in the principal's office than i did in class with my schoolmates you know i was always in trouble and so at a certain point they call my parents in 
uh, and I'm in the principal's office. There's me, the principal, my parents, and Sister Mary Lucidy. And Sister Mary Lucidy was probably about 700 years old at that point. <laughs> and this is the early 50s. And, and But she had so much belief in me. She was my third grade teacher, and I'll never forget her. And, I mean, she was ancient, but she was smart enough to see that there was kind of a talent there that needed to be, you know, really looked into. And when my parents were in that office, I remember my mom was like a basket case, you know, and it was just, you know, this, they were expecting it, you know, <laughs> it was no surprise. And, you know, they didn't know what to do. What do we do? What do we do? And sister Mary Lucy, I'll never forget. It, she said, your son has an extraordinary talent for art and love for art. You should try and help him with that. I'll never forget that. I mean, she was the first person outside of a family member that said, oh, this is, you really have some talent. You know, I always dabbled around. My dad was a carpenter. My mother was a homemaker. There was me and my brother. And, you know, she loved music. She was always in the kitchen. I remember she had a radio on the windowsill and she used to play music and dance around while she was making lunch and dinner or whatever. I mean, she was a beautiful, beautiful woman who had a lot of love for music. And I think that's kind of where I got the love for music from her. You know, uh, she would grab me and dance around. And, you know, she came from the 30s and 40s. And she was and, you know, my dad was my dad was a carpenter. That's what he did. You know, and, and when he wasn't working, he was he had built a three car garage. He tore down a car, one car garage and built a three car garage so that he could build cabinets and stuff for freelance jobs. He was always freelancing, even though he was a contractor's employee on the side. He would build cabinets. He would remodel kitchens. Him and my uncle were flipping houses. I mean, it was he was always working. So I, my work ethic came from him. I never realized it until later on in my life, how I had picked that up from him. I mean, it was amazing. I, I remember as a kid, my mother, to get rid of one of us, she would send us to work with, you know, in the summertime. Uh, so she would send me to work with my dad. And, you know, he would have me cleaning up and sweeping up whatever they're doing. And, and the main thing was getting bent nails and straightening them out, you know, with a hammer and sitting there and tapping them and putting them in jars and stuff because he was coming from the depression and, you know, all that stuff. I mean, it was for him, those were valuable things that needed to be reused. And so, again, I, I picked up a lot of my work ethic and, and love for what I did from him. And, you know, in high school, I remember I joined Bulldog Studio. Our mascot was the Bulldog, San Jose High School. And I joined the studio that was the art studio for all the stuff, all the art that was needed in the, in the high school, whether you were, it was a school play, whether it was somebody running for president of the class, we did all the posters and stuff. And so I kind of really gravitated toward that. My other work, I mean, I wasn't really that good a student. I really didn't have a lot of love for it. It's really funny because I want to back up for just a second. And we had talked about this before. When I was in junior high school, I was just starting. I think it was in the seventh grade. And I was really hyped on being an artist. And I did one of those draw me, you know, those matchbook covers that would come and they'd have a woman's profile or whatever. And draw me and you mail it in to someplace in Wisconsin or something. And, and they would tell you if you had any talent. Well, I did that. And they sent a guy out. Obviously, it was a local sales guy that was representing them, you know, to get people to sign up their kids. And so I remember 
you know, being, I wanted to do that. I thought this was going to be the start of, you know, being an artist. And here's this guy that comes out here and he's, he's telling my parents how good I drew and, and how, you know, I, so much I could learn and how, what a great career it would be. And they kind of knew that I loved art anyway. So they, you know, they asked me, will you do this? Because it wasn't cheap. I, I don't know exactly the amount, but it was a lot. My dad made 200 bucks a week. You know, I mean, he was no uh, making millions of dollars. You know, I mean, it was hard work. And, you know, he he really he wasn't rolling in the money, but he wanted to believe and help me as his oldest son. And so I committed to them saying, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm, you know, I'm going to do it. So they signed me up and they sent me, the guy went away. And a week or two later, I get this box and it's got a drawing board it's got a compass it's got a pencil sharpener it's got some pencils and it's got this t-square and i showed you guys this before this is my t-square this is the t-square that came with the all the other art materials okay and i still use this t-square to this (laughs) day Uh, i don't do anything really on computer i do everything old school it has a pretty special meaning to you it does it does It, it it is a reminder for me of the love that my parents had for me and the success they wanted me to have in my life. And they made a commitment. They made a pretty heavy commitment. I mean, they didn't have a lot of money to throw around. And so they did it. And and I, it's funny because they sent me the first course and I did it and I sent it back. And by the time it got back to me with their input, I discovered girls, and girls were pretty amazing. They were different than guys. You know, you stop not liking girls to liking girls, you know, and for me, that was like a real epiphany. (laughs) It's like, okay, you know, uh, you know, sixth, seventh grade, I'm starting to understand girls and, and cars, how important cars were. You know, I grew up in San Jose. That was like American graffiti. You know, it was like, it was all about cars and older people that you wanted to hang out with. I mean, I was, it, well, I remember being 14 and I'm hanging around with guys that are 16 and 17 that drive. And, you know, my parents were kind of freaking out about that because I was a kid. I had, you know, had a bicycle and these guys had cars and why are they hanging around with me? You know, and it, well, why do I want to hang around with them? And so there was that whole thing going on there. And, and so by the time I got the second or third, installment on this commitment that I had made to my parents that they financially made to this company, um, I wasn't interested anymore. You know, I was more interested in girls and cars and I just didn't want to do it anymore. And I stuck them with it. You know, they ended up having to pay. I think they may have got out of it, but it still cost quite a bit. And so I never, ever stopped using this T-square because it reminds me of the commitment they made for me and, and how important it was for me to really. And I, again, it didn't dawn on me till years later. I mean, there were a few years that I, I didn't use it and I found it. I went through some stuff and I found it and it's like, Oh my God, it had a whole different meaning to me then. It, it, it you know, my, my dad worked very hard, you know, to raise two sons and, you know, for him to just get stuck with that, something that I, I didn't really come to appreciate so much until years later, but again, it never, it never left my side. And I, I, like I said, I still use it to this day. I'll, 
I'll sit there and, and do my sketching. You know, I don't really do a lot of finished art anymore because I have someone that does that for me, uh, an old friend that we worked together for years. And, uh, and so he's an amazing computer uh, designer and we work together like two, you know, peas and carrots. So that was kind of what was going on. And in high school, I, again, being part of Bulldog Studio and doing all this stuff, I became really good at what I did at that point. And by the time I graduated, I didn't really plan on going to college. I mean, I didn't really, I wasn't prepared for college. I mean, I was lucky because of the art and boys foods, which I took a couple semesters. Uh, You know, I was able to get through high school. My grades were just probably C's. I remember seeing a couple of old report cards as a kid and it wasn't real glamorous, you know, and my, my parents really were worried, you know, and so I didn't, I graduated high school and, and like I said, by this time I had a 57 Chevy. So I was, you know, spending all my time polishing my car and, 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 you know, I had no skill. So, and it was summertime. So, None of my friends that I graduated with were working that hard yet. And and so we spent all summer cruising the Maine. It was just like American graffiti, you know. And and then, you know, summer was over and most of my friends went to work. They were in construction. They, they were doing this. They were doing that. They went to school. Uh, not very uh, many of them went to college. And if they did, it was city college. Uh, nobody really was planning. I mean, at least the people that I hung out with and I. You know, we, you know, one guy was an incredible mechanic and he had the fastest car in school. And so we would hang out and, and it was all about that, you know, drag racing on the weekends and stuff and dragging the main. And, and so I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't really have any skills. And so I decided uh, myself and a few friends went and saw The Great Escape with Steve McQueen. And they're in a Nazi prisoner of war camp. And, you know, they break away and he's got a motorcycle and he's doing all this riding in the hills in Germany and stuff. And we're like, yeah, we want to go. Let's go in the army and we can go overseas and ride motorcycles and stuff. And I remember getting ready to go to the uh, physical for signing up to enlist. And we were going to sign up. There was five of us. We were going to sign up for four years and really make a, you know, find ourselves. And my cousin, Bill, who was always had always been my idol. He's like four years, five years older than me. And I always looked up to him. And he was like the Fonz. You know, he was we were all like, you know, we would look up to him and follow him around at, at group gatherings and stuff. We were like goldfish poop you ever watch a goldfish poop it just follows them in the tank <laughs> and we were all those kids were like goldfish great visual poop. <laughs> you know yeah i mean it was just like that you know and i remember i guess my mom had <laughs> talked to him because we were ready to go and he had already joined a reserve unit and so he came and this is like 1963 and he came over and talked to me and said look you know I suggest you really think about what you're going to do. I know your friends are, you're all hyped about going and doing that, but I'll tell you what, why don't you come down to my reserve unit, meet the guys and, and check it out. Because if you go in for six months and you decide you love it and you want to do it, you can re you can re up and they'll give you extra money and they'll give you a choice of what you want to be and all that stuff. And, and it seemed to make sense because when you're, you know, four years, seem like a long time but it didn't seem like forever you know but maybe it's a better you know better way to put your toe in the water you know and um and i'm so glad and so grateful him to this day i thank him still 
for suggesting that because I mean, it was when I went in, I, I, I signed up and then I went in, I did my uh, active, I went into active duty, went through my, you know, training and stuff at, at, at Fort Ord in Monterey. And right around the time I had joined, Kennedy was assassinated and everybody knew that we were going to war. They thought it was going to be with Russia. And here I am in the army, you know, and it's like, man, this doesn't look good. Well, it turned out that it wasn't Russia or whatever, and nobody went to war yet. A year or so later, Vietnam broke out and all the reserve units closed up. And you couldn't, you, you know, there's no way you could, you had to go to Vietnam, Canada, or B4F. And the guys that I was going to sign up with four years, they all went. And every one of them flunked the physical. So I would have been the only one that would have passed the physical and gone by myself. So it's just funny how things kind of happen that way, right? And and so, um, you know, I, I was in the reserves and I still had no vocation, but, you know, I decided that six months in the army really straightened me out. It made me understand that I needed to do something with my life. I needed to do more than just drag the main and, and hang out and wait for my buddies to get off work. I needed to do something. And I didn't really know how to do anything except draw. And so what I did was I put together a portfolio and I, um, I went to Oakland. There was a small college, art college, an accredited college uh, called California College of Arts and Crafts. And it was on an old estate in Oakland, up at the top of Oakland. Oakland is a, a, a really cool place because before Montclair and the Hills, you could see down from my college campus, you could see down to Jack London Square, which, which was at the other end of Oakland where the water was and stuff in Jack London Square. And this campus was an old estate that these rich people had given. Uh, Treadwell was their names and they gave it to the school. And so the school made uh, classrooms out of carriage houses and barns. And the main house, Treadwell Hall, was the estate. It was on about, I'd say it was about two acres. And the campus itself, Treadwell Hall was the main house that was the estate. Then there was these carriage houses and barns and makeshift things. And they put in a cafeteria. They built a building at one end of the campus. And the rest of the campus looked like, um, I don't know whether you ever saw the movie with Catherine Hepburn and Elizabeth Taylor, Suddenly Last Summer. Okay, well, Catherine Hepburn's yard her her estate yard looked like something out of prehistoric times with all these very strange you know flowers and plants and crazy stuff and that was our campus you know and so we spent a lot of time outside drawing classes drawing different foliage and stuff like that i mean it was a and you know i had a i had a jewelry class in a carriage house i had a design class in a barn you know and Again, you know, there it was an environment that was comfortable going into. Oh, yeah, I, I'm an artist. I'm best in high school, and now I'm going to go to art college. This is going to be great. I got accepted on double, triple probation <laughs> because my, my academic grades were really low. I mean, C's, you know, it was never really. But all my art 
was A's and A pluses. I mean, it was that's really what got me through. Like I said, high school was boys foods. I took that two semesters with this crazy woman that was a cook, like uh, what's her name, Julia Childs. I think she was hitting the bottle in the back, and <laughs> I mean, all you could do to put up with all these crazy uh, call, uh, high school kids that couldn't pass anything else but boys' foods. I mean, how hard is it to pass boys' foods? You know, so uh, I'm sure she would, and she was great. She put up with this, but anyway, you know, now I'm in art school. I'm on double, triple probation. And I'm commuting from San Jose to Oakland, which is about a 30 minute, 35 minute drive every day to different classes. And the most shocking thing was that now I'm in a school where everybody is an artist. Okay. Not nobody's there to be a mathematician. Nobody's there to be a historian. Nobody's really, you know, doing anything other than being art. And so it's the best of the best. And for me, that was really kind of a shocker because I expected to come in, you know, best in high school and all that stuff. I mean, how hard could it be for me to uh, really become the best in this? Yet I didn't I didn't really understand that everybody is going to be there for the same thing I'm there for. So now it's a different scenario. It's a different situation. And boy, oh, boy, I mean, I'm again, as a freshman, looking at juniors and seniors who are creating artwork that's just amazing because they they had a whole uh area in treadwell hall where they would put up students work you know and i mean you know the, and as as you as a newcomer there as a freshman they would give you a tour of the campus and they would give you uh-oh what's that oh, <laughs> Ah, get in the bottle. You must have been a high school art uh, food, food teacher. Listen, when you have someone telling stories, you got to have something to sip on and listen. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I hope I'm not stealing the show here. No, no, I mean, we, we love you know, we love hearing exactly guys what we wanted. Questions? All right, that's what no, I'm. No, no. I just about. I want to I want to uh, remind our listeners that they're listening to musicians and beyond, and this is our special series called Under the Covers with Ernie Sheffaloo. Yeah, and, that's uh, me. I know that guy. Yeah, I know that guy. he's the yeah. best. I no, mean, I don't know about that. You so know, while, I mean, while we have Ernie here on on the podcast with us, Ernie is recounting his years and and his youthful influences as he grew up. His parents had a huge impact on him, and he went on through high school and on in, on to college. And while Ernie tells us the stories, because I, we could just sit here and listen for days, you always have to have something to sip on. So right now we have a little of Elijah Craig bourbon, nice. and we have. I'm going to do mine during the break. I like it. Then we have a little bit of Coquito from Puerto Rico. It's, oh, a, nice. it's a Puerto Rican nice. eggnog. So we have a little something yeah. to keep us in the holiday spirits while we listen. In the spirits. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. And, and uh, John, I hope you're doing it as well. Yes, sir. Not just Mark. Okay. No, no. I, I'll I do should. mine when I, I'll come back and my eyes will look like somebody's been throwing rocks at them. You know? <laughs> but, uh, you know, no. so it, it's, it's, you know, it, it is kind of a interesting, you know, I mean, there isn't a whole lot of art to talk about yet, but all of this is leading up to something that's pretty amazing. And, and nobody was more amazed than me at where it went. Because I never expected for it to be, even when I started art school, it was like I did it because I had to do something. You know, I'm right out of the army. I'm still going to reserve meetings and stuff, but I needed to do something. I, I needed to make something out of my life. I'm, I'm 18, 19. I, I, 
You know, I just feel like everybody else is doing something. I need to do something. You well, know, er- Ernie, you said you said something a minute ago that it, there's not a lot of art so far. You know, at this point in the story, but it is about your early influences that that led you to where you went to, and yeah. it is about your parents who had such a strong impact on your life and, and your work and your ethic and your discipline. So. It is important for people to realize where these things, as you said a minute ago, you didn't realize the impact of, of, of something that your parents gave you so many years ago until you found yeah. it years later. So yeah. it is yeah. important it to lay the, the, the groundwork. You yeah. don't think about it. You may not have thought about it at the moment, or maybe you did and didn't give it enough thought. You know, And, and there was even a point, if I can back up to go forward here for Please. a second. When I got out of school, I decided that maybe I should be a carpenter. Okay, maybe I should be a carpenter. I work with my dad and go get him tools while he's doing something. And, you know, and I, I, maybe that's what I needed to do. So I talked it over with him and, and I've got to tell you, honestly, I think it was probably one of the proudest moments in his life that I remember growing up when he took me down to the carpenters union and I met all the guys, you know, that are there waiting to go out on the jobs and stuff. And my dad worked for a contractor Kirkish, I'll never forget it. And he was his top carpenter. And he took me down to the to the carpenters union and I signed up to be a carpenter. And then our next door neighbor, Joe Gralia, was a contractor who had built the house we lived in in San Jose, built his house and was an independent contractor building custom homes. So he got me a job as an apprentice with Joe Gralia, okay, our neighbor. And Uh, I think as I look back on it, I think that my dad knew that my heart wasn't going to be in being a carpenter, even though I swore to him, this is really what I want to take your tools and become the next generation of of, of carpenter and somebody you'll be proud of in what you do and, and see that I can master it. And I think that him and Joe cooked up a scheme to hire me because I got, he hired me right away. As soon as I signed up the union, I, I got job the next day. And Joe Gralia and he, I think, planned to make my life miserable <laughs> so that I would really follow my heart. I think my dad was smart enough to know that. And um, I remember the every morning when I went to work, I would walk the next house over to meet Joe. He'd have his truck parked there. And he'd make me stand at attention and read the door of his truck. Joseph J. Gralia, a general contractor. Okay. And then his number. And he would say, now, you see, I'm the general and you're the private. And you need to do everything that I tell you to do. And we did that every morning. So for three months, I was digging foundation. I was laying subfloor. I would come home, my hands were totally blistered and bleeding, and he just made my life miserable to the point where I went to my dad and said, I just can't do this. I, I, I'm not, I don't, and my, here, meanwhile, my dad's got beams and he's walking across roofing and stuff. I mean, he had no fear. Was amazing, hanging off stiff, nailing shit upside down. I mean, it was crazy, and I'm like crawling along, right, just scared to death. And I, I finally went to him and said, "I can't do this." And I think that was probably the saddest day in his life. Okay, when he, his oldest son, just couldn't do it. But I did say to him, "I want to be an artist." 
all this has made me understand that I want to be an artist. My heart is really an art. And even though he said to me, is it really what you want to do? Is it really what you, he never said? Well, you stuck me and your mom with all the costs of that. And you, you know, said you're going to do it. And then you go off and get a car and girls and you, you forgot all about this. Meanwhile, we were still paying for it. He never, never said that. My mom never said it. My mom didn't have to say it. My mom would just look at me. Okay. And I would know exactly what she was thinking. I was exactly like, you know, my mother was crazy. She was wild. Her father owned a grocery store. And she would steal apples from the lady down the street because they tasted better than the apples in her dad's store. Okay, and she had a big scar on her arm where she was impaled on the woman's fence when the woman caught her up in the tree and she fell down. And I mean, she was a piece of work and I was just like her. So she didn't have to say anything. She'd just look at me and say, you know, I knew I had to, if I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna talk them into doing this again, I'm gonna convince them, I'm gonna sell my 57 Chevy and I had a beautiful Bel Air two-door hardtop, and it was awesome. Four speed on the floor, I was great. And uh, I sold it, got a Pontiac that I could drive back and forth to Oakland, and put together a portfolio, and went to this interview. And and they accepted me, like I said, on double tr- secret probation. And my first semester was very very hard because I was commuting 30 minutes and sometimes more in traffic from San Jose to Oakland and then try and go back and and then I'd go back home and guess what all my buddies were off work and let's go drag to Maine let's go do so I'd be out there doing that instead of doing homework okay so here I am in, in basically the same doing the same stuff so you know if I wanted to change anything you know and I after my first semester, I mean, I was kind of, I was just hanging on by the skin of my teeth. And so I decided that I was going to move to Oakland. And I had made friends with, there were three Asian kids. One was Japanese. The other two were Chinese. They were there to be artists. They weren't there to mess around. They weren't there to get high. They weren't there to party. They were there. I mean, they would wake me up and say, did you do your homework? Did you do this? Did you get this done? You know, and thank God for them. Because if it hadn't been for them, I would have probably flunked out. So all of a sudden, my next semester, I'm like on the honor roll list. You know, I mean, I'm doing really well. The only problem was I couldn't decide what I wanted to be. I wanted to be an artist. But the school that I went to, unlike most art schools like Art Center or um, a couple of these other ones, uh, specialized in a specific form like Art Center was really mainly for car designers and advertising agencies. That's they didn't. They had a couple of fine art classes because they had to, you know. But they, their main focus was producing designers and artists for Madison Avenue or for General Motors. They were sponsored by the big three automotive companies because probably eighty percent of the car designers came out of Art Center. In fact, a kid that I went to high school, Ed Roth. Uh, went to, uh, uh, yeah, no, no, not Ed Roth. He went to work for Ed Roth. Uh, what the hell was his name? I went to school with a kid that ended up working for Big Daddy Ed Roth and designed a bunch of cars for him, the Rat Fink and all that stuff. He was working for with him, and he had graduated Art Center. But I, I didn't want to move away to L.A. I wanted something local, and arts, uh, arts and crafts was that. You know, so um, after having these three roommates for two or three semesters, actually I think we were roommates for about three years, 
two years, two and a half years. And then I went off, got a couple other different roommates and, you know, moved on. But by that time, I it really had instilled in me uh, the reason why I was there. And it wasn't cheap. I mean, it was a, it, in those days, it would it would sound cheap today, but it was expensive. And again, my parents ponied up the money. And, you know, these guys made me realize that, hey, your parents are paying for this. You better, you know, reciprocate at least get an education, do something. So by this time, uh, I'm probably in my junior year and I had bounced around. I took a jewelry class. I wanted to be a jeweler. Okay. Then I took a ceramics class. I wanted to be, I wanted to throw pots and stuff. Then I took a, 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 a uh, I took a design class. I, I had taken some basic design classes and I was really good at it. I took a rendering class that, you know, you'd sit there and render feathers or artichoke. I have a big six foot artichoke, I painted, you know, from a little one that I had done for class and actually turned it in a year or so later for extra credit. That was the cool thing about going to art school. Everything was geared for the artist. OK, I had English. It's an accredited college, but it was English about art, mathematics, art, the way you compose compositions and stuff mathematically. History was art history, you know, so everything was based on the artist. And if you if you didn't do so well on a test or something, you could hand in an art piece and get extra credit. So you could move an F up to like a C plus. But if you're really good, you could move it to like a maybe a B minus or something. So, you know, I mean, they, it was real. Michael McClure. I don't know whether you're familiar with him. Mm. Um, he was a poet. He was also a Hell's Angel. He wrote he did the beard. He was in Candy, the movie. He was he, uh, Richard Burton played his part in Candy. Um, he, he he was best friends with Ferlin Getty and Ginsburg, you know, and Dylan, all these people. He was also a Hell's Angel. He used to wear his colors to class and had a knucklehole, knucklehead Harley that he would drive to school and park in the parking lot. It was amazing. You know, we we became our teachers were artists themselves. They weren't just people teaching it. They were accredited. You know, Ron Dahl, very famous painter and, and artist, was one of my teachers, you know. Um, and like I said, Michael McClure, you know, and philosophy was all about artists and how they looked at life and stuff. So everything was geared toward the artists. And it made it a lot easier for me because academics were never a strong suit for me. You know, art, I always excelled. I never got less than an A in four years of college, okay, in art. The other classes, well... You know, I could move a, an F to a C plus, you know, keep that grade point up there uh, and make sure I take plenty of art classes, you know. So uh, in my junior year, I had come to the realization that if I wanted to make any money at this, I needed to be in advertising because I, I was a painter. Yeah, but a crappy painter. I was a, you know, I was a jeweler, but, you know, there were so many other people that were better. You know, and but the one thing that I was really strong in was design. So I decided that I was going to make advertising my career. And I switched my major for the last time in the beginning of my junior year and and took beefed up on the advertising classes. And uh, I, I entered a contest in my junior year of college with the mayor of San Pablo. San Pablo was a small city in California, Northern California. And they had decided that the city council had opened up a contest to design the logo for the city of San Pablo. And so I'm thinking, well, you know, and, and, and by this point, I'm looking now to freelancing, okay, and getting as much work as I could that was professional, 
more than just I had a plenty of art projects. Okay. But you kind of knew they were art projects, you know? Uh, and, but the, the trick was to try and make them look as real as you could so that you could put them in a portfolio and you might be able to fool uh, an employer, a future employer that it was really something. So there was plenty of that, but I needed, if I'm going to go to New York and, and, and when I decided I was going to make advertising a career, I was going to, the only place to go was New York. Even though I was freelancing in San Francisco and Oakland, I had, I worked on Walter Lander's ferry boat for Dixie Corporation doing, you know, cups and plates and stuff. And, you know, I, I told you before that working on the boat was like this because it's in the pier at, in San Francisco Harbor and, and it's rolling with the tide. <laughs> so you're there at a design table and you're doing this all day long. Uh, so it was kind of interesting, but I was able to to get some work. And this opportunity with the city of San Pablo, that would be something if I could even get a runner up or something. So I designed a logo and I submitted it. There was 2000 sub submissions and I won. I couldn't believe it. It was like the first time that anything like that had ever happened. I mean, I was painting, you know, one of the things that we had talked about before was I made some extra money on during the holidays, painting gas station windows and city uh, store windows. And sometimes poster signs, it said, you know, green beans, 35 cents a pound. And they, they would put them up on in the store, you know? Uh, and so I made, I made some extra money like that, but this was an opportunity to really sort of compete. I didn't, I didn't realize if I would have realized there were going to be so many people that entered, I probably would have not. But at this point, I didn't realize there were going to be so many. And, you know, quite honestly, screw it. What do you got to lose? Right. You know, right. I give it a shot. So so know? the corporate part is going to be a whole nother part of your life. Oh, um, yeah. And you know what? The corporate part, it started with the corporate part. Right. My career started, as we'll be talking about, uh, my career started with the corporate because my idea was to go to New York and work on Madison Avenue. If you wanted to be successful in advertising, you had to work on Madison Avenue. Right. Okay. Right. And that's one of the reasons why I was so adamant about building a portfolio that I could go to an agency and convince them that it was real work. It yeah. wasn't a school project, you know? Yeah. So uh, winning this contest, I got $500. They used my logo and that the whole city council voted. I mean, it was unanimous that I was the one that they picked. And it's a really cool logo. I mean, it really is. It's right. City of the Bells. Uh, and, uh, and like I said, I'll, I'll, you, you know, it was the spark that I needed to convince me that this is what I needed to do. I was good at it. I could make money at it. Okay. I could, aside from painting gas station windows, there's not a whole lot of gas station windows in Manhattan. Okay. So I ain't going to make a career out of painting gas station windows with Santa Claus and turkeys and stuff for different holidays, uh, in New York. So this was kind of another one of those aha moments that you realize that, yeah, man, you know, you're, you, what you're feeling, what you're thinking, what you want, you can get, you can do it. I competed against 2000 people and I got it. I mean, it was like, so that was your real project. first paying yeah. advertising job. Your yeah. first, first gig, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. yeah. So to speak. And then after that, I started freelancing for Walter Lander because I, I got some, I wasn't a student anymore. You know, I was a professional. I did something that I got paid for and the whole city is using it. That's incredible. That's pretty amazing. That That's is pretty... incredible. Yeah. I can't it wait is. to, I can't wait to get to episode two 
and hear yeah. about all about what he did in the corporate world. I well, mean, that's, his things. That, this part one has been a great, great opening for for the series. It's going to you know take the audience from his childhood to all the way through college to his first paying job, and it sets the stage for going to New York from San Jose, California, yeah. all the way to New York to Madison Avenue, where he began his advertising career. Yeah, Dion Warwick and I were the only ones that knew the way to San Jose, that's for sure. <laughs> right, right. So again, you are listening to Musicians and Beyond, and this is a special series with Ernie Sheffaloo called Under the Covers, and we have a multi-part series for you. Ernie, we want to thank you again for coming on. Um, uh, the honor's I'm- mine, guys. I mean, uh, really, uh, you know, it for me, it's really exciting to – to talk about it because I mean, and I hope that, you know, your viewers feel the same way. I hope that, you know, I, I can keep them entertained. I, I, I feel very confident and obviously you guys do too, that there's some interesting stuff here and it's going to get better as we go along. I mean, I mean, who starts out as a child prodigy? I certainly wasn't, right. you know, I mean, but in a way I was, in a way I, I, I had this talent that I never realized. Well, well we, thank, we can't could, wait to hear thank about God it. You found part. your way. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, thank God I found my way. And thank God, thank my parents, thanks people like you guys, Mark and John, for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. I mean, it's for me. It's and, and we're going to talk about it later. But we talked about Goldmine Magazine. For me, it's like, oh my God, yeah. the story is finally out there, all in one place, and that's what this is going to be. The story, the complete story is going to be there from then, from that birthday picture there in the nude, to <laughs> today, right now, we're going to tell that story. Well, and we can't I, wait to hear the, the real story right from the horse's mouth. Yeah, um, or the it, horse's it, butt. The horse's butt. Uh, <laughs> Some we, people argue and say, hey, he's a patoot. <laughs> <laughs> Whichever way you pick hey, is that perfect. don't matter. Yeah, but, being the horse is all that matters. I don't care if I'm in the front or the back. Both but, are very important. But I can tell we're guaranteed for a, a wild ride, Mark. And we, Ernie, we want to thank you again for coming on, and thank you thank for being you. our friend. And, yep, and thank you, Ernie, for coming in again. And, and we're looking forward to the next part in the series. Part two is going to be coming up uh, in the next week. So um, we want to thank you for coming into the studio and being our friend today and look forward to the thank next you conversation. Thank having me do it, man. Thank you for allowing me the time. You know, uh, I really appreciate it. I'm Actually. very humbled by it and honored. And we are as well, Ernie. Thank you. Thank you, sir. All right.